Welcome to the Great Unknown, Global Cultural Explorations. We venture into the unknown for us and discover treasures that we can bring back to share with you. Welcome to the Great Unknown with me, James Harris. And me, Wolf O'Neill. We are here because we would like to find out more about the world, challenge ourselves to expand our horizons and share our discoveries with you. We'll be looking at culture, art, entertainment, literature, history, uh, and that's just for starters. Smashing. Thank you very much. And welcome to the episode, everybody. We are going to be talking this week about dystopias. Before we get to that, uh, how's, how's life treating you at the moment? Wolf, how's, how's lockdown? We're obviously recording remotely on Zoom, same as the rest of life appears to be at the moment. I would say it's going pretty good, but the urge to walk outside Shawshank Redemption style in this rain throw myself down in a muddy puddle and scream at the heavens while I tear my shirt off is uh, is overwhelming. <laughs> uh, yeah, I feel you. I feel you on that one strongly. I just want to disappear off and into the countryside somewhere quite often. Although I have been managing to go for a couple of walks. Um, I went into Constable Country the other day near the River Stour because it's not actually too far from us and apparently guidances were allowed to go for some form of walk outside because living in London... You know, what, be in a park with like 10 million other people or actually drive somewhere where there's actually a bit of peace and quiet. So I'll go for the peace and quiet. Thank you. Um, I've been exploring a bit of the South Downs and more of the River Ouse. Um, and I could, if I wanted to, walk it right to the South Coast. So I think I'm going to start going on some longer walks and uh, follow that. See, see where it goes. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's the best we can do. In the meantime, just been uh, watching lots of films and uh, trying to take in as much culture digitally as possible it's not quite the same certainly with things like theatre online but uh, we've been I've been catching up on tons of classic Hollywood films and particularly like amazing female uh, characters from Hollywood have you seen His Girl Friday? I haven't yet no I've been really wanting to that's like the other classic screwball with Cary Grant and Catherine Hepburn isn't it? no I don't it's not Catherine Hepburn but it's it's on Prime and it's it's impeccable impeccable I think it's probably my f- I think it's my favourite of the screwball comedies that I've seen. I'd say that I'd probably put it at the top. Oh boy, that's, that is some high praise. Uh, I don't think your ears are ready for just how fast the lines of dialogue are delivered by multiple characters over the top of each other. <laughs> you, you feel like you've watched an entire movie and you're about 10 minutes in. <laughs> We've been doing a thing as well with, with my girlfriend that we're... We've given ourselves 10 categories of films to get to know each other by. And then we've each had to come up with a, with a film for each category. And then we don't tell the other person and we just pick a category and then we watch the other person's film. Take it in turn. So things like most notable childhood movie, a film that makes you feel incredibly romantic, a film that just makes you laugh and smallest hill you'd be willing to die on. Uh, loads of random different categories. So I think I've had Chariots of Fire uh, for a childhood movie. Uh, and what's it been like watching the films that you didn't pick oh it's been great actually it's been really interesting to find a different way to discover films and through the eyes of somebody else so for example we watched her her childhood movie was coming to america with eddie murphy which is full of full of swearing and nudity and all sorts of quite adult humor but being uh i guess partly just from her perspective basically what was really interesting to sort of view that as her as a child and in like a very norwegian upbringing like nudity just didn't make it just didn't register with them at all with her and her sister and then there was things like we watched the uh, steve coogan and rob bryden 
film of the TV series, The Trip. And it was really interesting because I got to watch that through somebody who wasn't from the UK and doesn't know who they are. And it reminded me of watching lots of other films from different countries where you sort of see middle-aged men just being a bit absurd and these kind of low-key dramas from from around the world, which often have subtitles and things. So it was interesting to try and view it almost as a foreign film because that's when she'd seen it, first of all, was at a film festival in... I think it was in Helsinki. It was like Helsinki Documentary Festival. And it was kind of in there because it's kind of half documentary, half drama. And I thought that was a really interesting perspective, just seeing British culture through different eyes. So I've, I've really, really enjoyed that whole way of doing things, actually. Yeah, a lot. Were there any in there that you... Uh, wished you hadn't watched uh so far no actually because i think the the interesting thing with with doing the categories is that i'm learning something about her and about the way i watch films as well the whole time regardless of whether the film is a you know is a classic or a bit bit you know whatever so it's actually been really enjoyable the whole way through and also we're figuring out what best is for the community at the moment in this weird scenario and so we've come across a lot of mutual aid organizations and uh, food banks and there's loads of volunteering opportunities at the moment in local communities we've been uh, myself and my housemate have been with one called the felix project which donates food to other food banks um, it's like a sort of centralized food collection thing it's like pret and everything we give all their extras to them and then they donate it out to other food banks so anything like that always worth doing at the moment as well so uh, besides entertaining yourself uh, trying to find something useful to do during lockdown is you know that's been keeping us going i think but how about we start talking about this week's episode, Dystopias. And James, out of interest, why did we pick this episode? We decided to do this because Dystopia is maybe very relevant to life at the moment and exploring maybe what elements of Dystopia flow into our current scenario. You know, if you, if you, if you looked and asked yourselves a year ago before you knew any of this would happen, you said, in a year's time, no one will be allowed outside and there'll be a global pandemic. You'd be going, that's pretty dystopian. So it just felt kind of a little bit appropriate. And actually, uh, in in research, I was reading uh, all sorts of different things, but there was a quote from 1984, which we won't go into too much today, but something just to follow on from our previous series, which really, really uh, hit me, which was this quote. April the 4th, 1984. Last night to the flicks. All war films. One very good one of a ship full of refugees being bombed somewhere in the Mediterranean. Audience much amused by shots of a great huge fat man trying to swim away with a helicopter after him. First you saw him wallowing along in the water like a porpoise. Then you saw him through the helicopter's gun sights. Then he was full of holes and the sea around him turned pink as he sank as suddenly as though the holes had let in the water. Audience shouting with laughter when he sank. Then you saw a lifeboat full of children with a helicopter hovering over it. The helicopter planted a bomb right over them. Considering that's not a million miles away from a lot of things that happens with, in 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 the in refugee situation at the moment, uh, this idea of refugees being on the sea being attacked is something that's come up quite a lot. In fact, to see, to see that in 1984 as well, which was written in 1949, was quite a quite a stark little quote that I just had to pick out. Yeah, I w- I wouldn't have guessed that it was when you first sent it to me. I didn't quite register that it was written so long ago. Uh, it felt like you were giving me a quote that was from something much more recent. Yeah, it's kind of it's quite a bleak, a bleak thought turning that into entertainment. So, and uh, we have a special guest today. Uh, we have an interview from Kate. 
who is currently studying her PhD at Sussex University, down here on the lovely South Coast. And she, uh, she's recently just got back from Los Angeles, where she was doing a placement at the Octavia Butler Archives in uh, downtown Los Angeles, which is fascinating, and I would love to go there. Uh, so she's going to come along and give us some more informed insight into uh, everything that we've been looking at. Absolutely. Uh, but before we do that, so we can allow her to, to really share her knowledge, um, we wanted to give a brief overview of dystopias. And so, Wolf, you're going to start with some definitions of what we mean when we say dystopia. Well, James, probably the best place to start is with utopia. And we're just going to kind of rattle off some of the most basic definitions. So a utopia is an imagined place or state of things where everything is perfect or pretty close to perfect. The term was first created by Sir Thomas More, um, who you might already know about, uh, in his 1516 novel Utopia, where he wrote about the perfect society, uh, the kind of place that's devoid of crime and poverty and violence. So that's utopia. So if, if, if that's utopia, what is dystopia? So a dystopia is then essentially kind of the opposite. An imagined state or society where there is horrible, horrible injustice, terrible suffering, um, misery, squalor, oppression, disease, overcrowding, the kind of classic things that you can think of. All the worst things that you could possibly imagine usually take place in a dystopia because it's this kind of hyper-realized society where you, you, you take an element of society that we live in now and then you escalate it to its worst imaginable condition and then base your world around that. And I had another definition that was an imaginary place where everything is as bad as it can be. So that's pretty pretty effective. Dystopia. If you already have the word utopia, then dis essentially means bad, so it's kind of like bad place. Bad utopia. Okay, so now we understand what a dystopia and utopia is. Can you tell us a little bit about the trends in the history of dystopian fiction and how we come to have our contemporary understanding of it? Uh, dystopian fiction sort of arises in the earliest early 20th century, at a time of great unrest. Ideas about utopias were prevalent in communist ideas, the rhetoric of eugenicists, fascists, etc., around the world. They were trying to build their utopias, which is what we kind of saw happen in the early 20th century. And from out all of this, you get a number of authors who start to challenge these ideas, and they produce works such as We, uh, in 1924, you've got Brave New World in 1935, you've got 1984 and 1949, um, and they also inspired uh, Anne Rand with a lot of her work in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. Then the World War II ends, and kind of both wars combined, the ramifications of the camps, Hiroshima, uh, fear of unchecked governments, rulers, growing technology. It was also a time when the threat of World War III was still quite prevalent, feels hard for us to imagine that now, but that, that really was a genuine fear at the time. And instead of there being this surge of optimism, what we were presented with was kind of this uh, boom in pessimism and this influx of dystopias. So sort of from the 50s onwards, a huge wave of dystopias coming in. And I was reading a really great article on The New Yorker, which argued that the mid-20th century produced a bunch of work that was critical of the liberal state. Predominantly, um, Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged comes up as kind of one of the main texts during this period of time. While later in uh, the 20th century, liberal dystopias arrived, spreading warnings about the environment, war, surveillance, alerting us to things that we should be considering. I have a really good quote from Marge Piercy that she wrote 
The early 1970s was a time of great political ferment and optimism among those of us who longed for change, for a more just and egalitarian society. So dystopian fiction can come from a place of optimism, inspire change, warn people about things in society that they should be aware of and the kind of disaster that could be coming down the line. So there's kind of surge in rights-based dystopias, feminist dystopias. Uh, we wanted to fight back against corporations. And it's easy to imagine that in the context of the Vietnam War and everything that was going on in the 70s. That kind of led up to Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale, which is obviously a, a really important text. 1985, I think that was written in. And then if you're continuing kind of main trends after that, the next kind of big thing that starts to happen is Lois Lowry writes The Giver in the middle of the 90s, which is kind of aimed a little bit young adults. And then with that, in the 2000s comes The Hunger Games, The Maze Runner. And when those books start becoming really popular with their audiences, they then enter the cinematic world and um, become the massive blockbusters that we know they are and consumed by hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of young adults around the world who are feeling disenfranchised, lied to. It's also sometimes connected to kind of post 9-11, that that event kind of shattered everyone's understanding of the world and opened us up to kind of the harsh realities of what was to come and that children weren't necessarily hiding from this. They were kind of directly engaging with it, which is why authors produced quite a lot of young adult dystopian fiction. Yeah, and that so kind of is where we are now. So we've mentioned a whole bunch of different texts and particularly novels. And there's also a huge cinematic tradition as well. Uh, films like Brazil, which I, I love, and uh, Children of Men. There's a huge, like, absolute swathe of different dystopian novels, films, all sorts of different things. Can you give us a brief overview of what types of dystopia there are, how we might uh, sort of identify dystopias, and what, what we're sort of looking at when we see them? Um, I'll do my best. The main issue with this is everybody has a completely different uh, breakdown, a completely different... Uh, definition there are numerous subcategories but the main thing is that it's kind of going to come under this umbrella of totalitarianism uh, and is related to a system of government that is centralized and uh, usually it's going to be like a dictatorship and uh, will require subservience of the state we witnessed this happen obviously in all around the world spain germany etc so it's, it's easy to imagine how you take real life scenarios and then convert them into this dystopian world they're usually oppressively controlling. And the ways that they maintain that is uh, could be uh, corporate, bureaucratic, technological, moral, could be religious control. The main thing that sticks out for me is that they all revolve around this loss of human rights, freedom, thought, the right to control your own body, your own destiny, choice essentially is removed from us uh, and restricted by these kind of oppressive rules. So if you're thinking about those kind of methods of control, when you think about government control, you think about Orwell's Big Brother uh, or the Hunger Games, everybody restricted into their kind of subsections or their areas. Technological can, control. Yep. So with technological control, usually um, it's really advanced science that we kind of can't predict at this time. So eugenicist style kind of thing. Yeah. And, and the technology is what uh, controls us or enables control, technology that we can't really fight against, maybe technology within all our homes, within all our cars. Societal control? So this is usually 
I think you can break it down in a couple of different ways. Um, but if it's decreed by the government, it's usually the forced separation of people. Uh, so this is like class systems, uh, as well as the idea of general conformity, uh, pressuring people to conform and kind of removing the opportunity to be different. I also feel like this is when fear of your neighbor, distrust of your family and friends comes into play. The one way that dystopias can control you in this aspect is to actually destroy the family unit, remove that completely so that you, you know well that that doesn't exist. And that kind of fear that, that you'll be ratted out or punished for breaking the norms, being different. And if you can't even tell your closest friend, your roommate, your family member how you feel, then what hope do you have? You're, you're entirely alone. It, it, it just uh, converts you into being an individual rather than kind of part of society. Added to that, you can also have ideological control. So it could be religious ideology or it could be political ideology. Yeah, and anything where the state decrees there is one of something, one religion to believe in, one political ideology to believe in, and all others are destroyed or prohibited, uh, as soon as that happens, it's again, it's a loss of choice, a loss of individuality, a loss of a smaller society. You also get kind of a lot of bureaucracy. Uh, I don't even think I can say that word properly, but you get a lot of it. It's like in Brazil, was it like, or, uh, what are those pages called? You have to have this form in order to get that form. But if you don't have that second form, you can't get the first form. Oh, and after you've got the first form, you need this third form, but you've got to go to a different department to get that. And they're closed. No, no, no. You want the Department of Records. <laughs> Mr. Lowry, Mr. Lowry, would you step in here, please? Brazil. The whole film hinges on the fact that a fly gets caught in a copier and Buttle, uh, as a misprint, gets arrested instead of Tuttle. And the whole the whole film spirals from there, which I rather enjoy. Apart from the ending, it, it essentially builds to this idea that you can have this complete revolution based on the fact that a single letter is altered on a typewriter. If there's just one mistake in this totalitarian system, that's enough. So also we, we've looked at post-apocalyptic scenarios as well, because that often comes into our discussions of dystopias and maybe is not a complete counterpoint to totalitarianism, but we often see a lot of post-apocalyptic scenarios in, in dystopias. So there has been some kind of uh, war, plague, pandemic, disaster, alien invasion, even zombie apocalypse. Uh, these are all the kind of things that might cause that. And one of one or other of those kind of things that we've been talking about, like government control comes in as a response to that particular thing. So these totalitarian types of control often take place within post-apocalyptic scenarios because something that a lot of authors talk about is kind of moments of change. And and that's a, that's a really interesting concept anyway, I think, within dystopias. And something that Margaret Atwood talks about quite a lot is the kind of slowness of change. And so a post-apocalypse scenario is a really good way of envisaging mass change. But in even in The Handmaid's Tale, this quote speaks to how, how dystopias can come about. And it's often really easy to visualise that post-apocalyptically. But in The Handmaid's Tale, uh, and this is from the TV series, mind you, as well, because I've been watching that as opposed to reading the book. But in the TV series, there's the quote, When they blamed terrorists and suspended the Constitution... We didn't wake up then either. They said it would be temporary. Nothing changes instantaneously. In a gradually heating bathtub, you'd be boiled to death before you knew it. For me, that, that kind of speaks to the idea of the slow change that, that then gets taken advantage of 
into a dystopian scenario but that's quite a hard one to depict whereas uh like a zombie apocalypse is quite a, it's quite a, <laughs> quite an easy way to get yourself into a dystopia and to kind of shift the imaginative focus quite quickly the idea of sleeping through the warning signs is very prevalent in dystopian fiction particularly in kind of the post-apocalyptic stories which they're often based around the fact that the world prior to the apocalypse was not functioning and was not working and it was their decisions which led to this uh, which is easy to see it's easy to imagine us not listening to science now not doing enough to change failing for 20 or 30 years and then being in a situation where uh, millions of lives are lost another another quote that comes from the parable of the sower which we'll talk about a little bit more with kate is i've changed my mind i used to wait for the explosion the big crash the sudden chaos that would destroy the neighbourhood. Instead, things are unravelling, disintegrating, bit by bit. Again, a very similar quote to The Handmaid's Tale, and I really like that one because that's that whole idea of sleeping through the change. But it really helps to have post-apocalyptic scenario. And in Parable of the Sower, there is a kind of environmental crisis and water has become as, as valuable as money. It's not the focus, but it often really helps to have a major post-apocalyptic kind of thing where the reader can grab onto this sense of this is the thing that's changed it's just kind of quite subtle and slow and i think that's a really interesting newer trend within dystopian fiction to try and explore that a lot of uh, more old school um dystopias are like really blunt major traumas to society and major like totalitarian responses <laughs> Wolf and I have done our best to give an overview to the listener of dystopias and how we kind of identify different trends and definitions and we've also figured out that we are a little bit struggling to nail them down because they're not necessarily fixed. So what we've done and what we try and do always is get somebody who knows a lot more than us to to come and chat to us about uh, the topic that we're looking at. And so for dystopias, we're very lucky to be able to chat to Kate. And Kate has been researching for their PhD, particularly focusing on a couple of different works, uh, but including uh, Octavia Butler's Parable of the Sower, which was one of the key ones that we've both read. So hello, Kate. Thank you very much for, for coming on. Thank you for having me. Without me trying to explain anything that you've been doing, can you just briefly fill us in on uh, what research you are currently doing and where you're doing that and what drew you to researching this subject matter? My research is currently looking at recent incarnations of the utopia and the dystopia, focus more on the dystopia, particularly feminist dystopias. Um, I'm thinking about how dystopian narratives influence activism, have been influenced by activism, and what dystopias have the possibility to do, what they might be restricted in doing. And in terms of what first drew me to the research, I watched uh, The Hunger Games, the last Hunger Games in 2015. And I remember leaving the cinema and feeling so like pumped. I feel like it was probably the most explicit example of like activism and like rebellion within any of the films. And at the same time, I, as being really excited about what I'd seen, I just felt this kind of real sense of political apathy around me. And like Hunger Games is one of the biggest blockbusters in the world and like everyone loves it. And it's got a really big, big like mainstream following. 
And it has quite like radically anti-capitalist, pro-equality messaging, but it just doesn't feel like people are connecting those messages to actual political inequality and like engaging in protest and challenging austerity, for example. It just, it feels like the way that protest is seen by like the everyday person is very much like, we don't need that anymore. We're in quite a comfortable position. There are other ways to enact change through like, you know, democratic processes in parliament. Why do we really need activism or, or protest? But what we're seeing on screen is that actually activism and protest is one of the main ways that shit gets done and things change. And I started to think a bit about that. And I then started my PhD a couple of years later. And yeah, a lot has happened since then. Uh, I started the PhD at the same kind of time as Brexit and Trump. And it was becoming a lot more um, common within like political commentary to talk about like the dystopian age. And there's been a lot of dystopian fiction the past 20 odd years or so, but it hasn't necessarily translated to politics until I would say the last maybe five years at most. People just weren't really using dystopia within like political language and now it's everywhere. There's loads of memes talking about like, you know, which dystopia are you in? You know, we have coronavirus right now, which is making people feel the dystopia even stronger, I think, than they maybe were before. But I think it's a really interesting time where dystopia is being used a lot in protest. I mean, The Handmaid's Tale is a really explicit example. And there's other examples I can come to a bit later. But I just think that's interesting. Like, what, like what is the dystopia able to do? What is it able to encourage people to question? What utopian alternatives can people think about uh, when questioning the dystopia? And how do these things connect to the political change and activism? And, and basically, for me, it's like, how can they do more? Not just what are they doing, but what can they do? Because we've got to use what we can get to try and change things, I think. I was intrigued to ask if you thought we were in a dystopia. I know the answer's probably mm. not. But one of the things that I've been increasingly reading is that, and you referenced how it's being discussed in the media, I think we're all incorrectly using or discussing dystopias and saying that we are in one, mm. but we, we can never be, or at least it would seem unlikely because it's such an extreme version of reality. I actually disagree. I think dystopia is completely possible or has been possible or has happened in the past. I think Atwood specifically said, I've used things that have already happened. All of this, all of these narratives are just combined with different forms of reality. So yeah, it's maybe an extreme version and it's a combination of various different things, but dystopian conditions are very possible. On, on, on the flip side, I would say that I don't necessarily think that we are in a dystopia now. I think that there have been dystopian conditions across history for a number of different groups and a number of different countries, but they just haven't necessarily affected the West in the same way, if that makes sense. So I think we're, we're speaking about it now within certain contexts in, kind of in the UK or within relatively privileged countries because we're seeing upheavals that we've never experienced before because there is a relative sense of, of comfort comparatively to other places. But I wouldn't say that any of these conditions are necessarily new in terms of being dystopian, but I think that we're still connecting them in interesting ways to dystopian narratives that we weren't doing previously. I think it's really interesting considering the dystopian elements that may exist at the moment. And I, I, I really uh, smiled at your answer that 
uh, we haven't seen a lot of dystopian conditions in the West and that kind of element of things. And I think that's a really interesting point that we'll perhaps come back to later on. But considering different societies and, and, and now all of a sudden our own society, in, certainly in Britain for, for myself and Wolf, certainly in Britain I think we're, we're, we're feeling a lot more dystopian conditions, if you like, without mm. it being a full dystopia perhaps. But obviously I also want to emphasise that there is a lot of dystopian conditions in the West. I think I don't want it to just be, you know, we're superior and other countries outside of the West aren't doing so well. I also, I just want to kind of think about who is seen as a, as a dystopia because they haven't, because they've had a, a life of relative privilege previously. There's a lot of people who are living in, you know, really, really dire conditions in the UK. There's various different pockets of inequality, even with a, within a wealthy country like the UK. So I think I, I'm trying not to be too critical of my participants who might be engaging with dystopia, but I do think that sometimes those nuances are, are being lost around the dystopia for who can we extrapolate from the past as well as to the future around what's already been enacted in dystopian ways i often don't think that that's happening so okay what are the main aims of utopia and dystopia and in your opinion what is the key difference between these two in regard to the author's intentions historically the aim of utopia for thomas moore he wrote utopia was as a kind of thought experiment so it was a way to explore different ways of being within a different place as a way to convince a reader to question the way that things currently were, but not necessarily to implement the utopian world in, in practice. However, from the end of the 19th century, uh, Edward Bellamy, who wrote Looking Backwards, set his utopia in the future and was very much invested in this idea of how could society be different and how would I want it to be different in reality? As opposed to just kind of playing with ideas, it was very much setting out a kind of blueprint of how things could be what he imagined uh, as better. Following that kind of trend of the modern utopia, which was much more invested in a political program, we see utopianism come into political uh, regime change. So uh, Hitler and Stalin had a very kind of utopian image of what the world could be like based on their plans of genocide and extermination. In relation to these blueprint utopias, which were recognized as being very oppressive, authors like uh, Yevgeny Zamyatin, Aldous Huxley and George Orwell uh, created the anti-utopia and what became known as the dystopia to challenge this idea of uh, a utopia as a blueprint. They were very invested in questioning the, these regimes that they saw around them and extrapolating what they imagined would happen if these regimes were to continue. So in terms of the intention, I would say that uh, utopian authors are trying to create alternatives uh, in the present or the future, whereas dystopias are explicitly trying to challenge the direction of travel. So they're a bit more resistant and a bit more uh, able to lend themselves to rebellion and like preventative action as uh, opposed to enacting radical change in terms of implementing a new system. So, okay, one of the things that I was reading is there's multiple definitions for things. And I was wondering, can you clarify the difference between dystopian and anti-utopia? 
I think that anti-utopia was the origins of the dystopia. Um, dystopian narratives that came out of the earlier uh, 20th century were very critical of the utopia and they were criticizing attempts to implement blueprint versions of utopia. And they, what became the case uh, was anti-utopia started to be seen as there's no point in utopia at all. And what we currently have, the status quo is as good as it's gonna get. So it became very static and inflected with very kind of liberal reformist way of political, of, of seeing political change in terms of uh, liberal capitalism is the best and only way of managing society and any form of radical utopian imagination in, in, about things being different isn't going to work in practice. It's, it's, it's always going to be oppressive and uh, lead to authoritarianism. It's very much like there is no utopia or utopia is futile, whereas dystopia tends to extrapolate from current conditions to imagine where the utopia might lead and often has an element of, of, of resistance to the uh, dystopia within the narrative. So it's a little bit more complex. It's a little bit more where are we heading as opposed to utopia is futile. And I'm just going to quote uh, Tom Moylan, who writes a lot um, in academia around utopia. He says the anti-utopian dystopia recognizes that the best that can happen is uh, the integrity of the individual is maintained uh, even when the hegemonic power coercively and ideologically closes in. So it, it still has some integrity, um, but not much. Uh, whereas the utopian dystopia, which is my focus, acknowledges collective resistance, not just uh, a kind of one protagonist resisting, uh, and sometimes even uh, shows a full-fledged opposition and even victory against the apparently impervious, tightly suited system. I'm really interested in this idea of of a collective response because that's something that I have a big problem with is is a lot of dystopian novels certainly have special characters for example and there was something written in the parable of the sower that kind of summed up my feeling on that as well the company city subgenre always seemed to star a hero who overthrew outwitted or escaped the company and that's like an old hollywood trope of well as well of the special individual and it's something that that hollywood really like propagates is this idea that there's a unique individual who's either got some special trait or is uniquely placed to be able to make a difference and that kind of teaches people to despair and so I, I have a I, I struggle with that sometimes in dystopian fiction if there is resistance it usually comes from this kind of special individual so I'm definitely interested to hear more about this idea of collective response to to these things can you tell us more about the intersection between fiction and activism how have activists interpreted and used utopian dystopian fiction in the real world the most notable examples that come up regularly in my research as being influenced by the utopia is like the french revolution the paris commune uh the uh, russian Revolu revolution uh and the movements of the 1960s hippie era was seen as very uh, utopian in terms of imagining and enacting how things could be different. But I'm focused particularly on contemporary examples. So more contemporary examples of utopianism rely on this, uh, the concept of prefiguration. I'll give a 
brief overview. So um, prefiguration is a, an activist tenant uh, which focuses on the phrase from Gandhi, uh, be the change you wish to see in the world. So instead of focusing on like the end as a political aim, it focuses more on the means of like, how do we want to get there? How do we want to enact the kind of social organizing that we want to see now, as opposed to just working towards, working towards it. Examples of this were the global justice movement in the, in the nineties, which was made up of a series different environmental feminist people of color and uh, Occupy Wall Street has kind of taken up some of these uh, aims in kind of 2011 which is when that kicked off globally and their like main phrase was another world is possible. These are these have been considered in, in my research very strong examples of utopianism seeping into activism but you could argue that utopianism is in most forms of activism because that's what you're doing. You're trying to imagine things, you know, being radically different. Uh, and that's the kind of core of utopian thinking. In terms of the dystopia, I would say that the, the dystopia has come up more visually. And I think that that's probably got something to do with the massive uh, influx of dystopian imagery we've seen on screen. These are just a few examples that I found so far. So there were protests in 2010 uh, in... Palestine and there was also a protest uh, in the Amazon rainforest, so very interesting context around indigenous rights. In Palestine, indigenous leaders dressed up as uh, characters from Avatar, um, which came out maybe a year or so beforehand. So I think Avatar really spoke to this sense of an encroachment of land, colonists basically coming in and disrupting way of life and often related to profit. Uh, in terms of the Amazon uh, rainforest organisers, they wrote letters to James Cameron asking him to help in their battle to stop a dam proposed by the Chilean government. So there was, I think, as early as 2010, uh, some connections being made between this kind of influx of dystopian imagery. There's a debate to be made that Avatar isn't necessarily dystopian, but it definitely has dystopian themes. There's no debate that it's a terrible film, I might add. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but no, yeah, I, I, I quite like it. I remember watching it 10 years ago and quite liking it. <laughs> uh, sorry, yeah. I was being a bit savage. But uh, no, I, I, it's, I, I think it was really interesting that it had like the kind of political focus it did, even if I didn't mm. quite go along with the, the 3D and the storytelling and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. But, yeah. Well, the most yeah, interesting... I think there's critiques of it as well. I don't know if this is necessarily been verified but avatar is supposedly based on a word for world is forest which is an ursula le guin dystopia ursula le guin herself has distanced herself from that claim though because she says that the movie took it in a direction that she never intended and actually changed a lot of the messaging that she came up with it's yeah it's a very interesting book actually i recommend the word for world is forest it's very focused on in, in, indigenous rights ursula le guin was writing that actually during the vietnam war so she was playing with some of these political concerns within her fiction then as well. Just to quickly go back, the other examples I found are the, the use of the Vita Vendetta mask that's still happening now, but it was used all the time in 2011, a lot by Occupy protesters, so an interesting kind of utopian and dystopian use of protest uh, by Occupy. And then the last main example, oh sorry, the last two main examples that I'm thinking about is the handmaid's tale protest and like the dressing of handmaids is being used now by 
across the political spectrum. It's being used in the, the current anti-lockdown protests in the US. Sorry, are they dressing up from The Handmaid's Tale in these current protests? Yeah. Oh, because I, ha I hadn't seen that. Yeah, which is really scary. So I think that, there, that there's a case to be made that if your imagery, your dystopian imagery can be used across the political spectrum or is being used across the political spectrum, there's a case to be made that if dystopian imagery is being used in such a way that the message is just anti-government, it's just anti-anything, it's you know anti-dystopia when you're wearing the handmade costume, that maybe the messaging is too universalizing and actually isn't that helpful for those who are trying to position themselves as having a, a particular message. Because seeing people, presumably from the right, it, engaged in anti-lockdown protests, wearing the handmaid's outfit and basically appropriating the costume for their own means is kind of scary actually and the messaging gets really lost in terms of the previous protests when that happens I think. Uh, and you said you had uh, there was one more example you said uh, oh, yeah. you, you were going to have a look at. This one is less visual uh, and, and less explicit but I'm thinking about Extinction Rebellion uh, as utilising quite dystopian messaging in their protests and in their organising. The name Extinction Rebellion, they're directly challenging and a form of extinction. And they use a lot of, I think, quite catastrophizing messages that I think are uh, implicitly dystopian, even if they aren't referring to a specific text or dressing in a certain way. It's come up a lot in my interviews as well. I've been interviewing people uh, in a UK context around their involvement in activism and thinking about dystopia and utopia in politics rebellion comes up every time. So based on everything you've said, Kate, do you think that utopia or dystopia are more inspirational with regards to influencing real life activism? I think that you need a bit of both within activist groups. I think to imagine alternatives is a very powerful act within activist spaces. But I also, for me personally, I think that, that, that the dystopia is more motivating within activist spaces because often activism starts from resistance and resistance is a much stronger theme within dystopias than it is utopias. Utopias tend to be traditionally considered quite static and there isn't much opportunity for change because you've already achieved perfection. Whereas dystopias, uh, as we've touched upon, the person within the narrative, the main character is often going through a process of realizing the status quo isn't quite as ideal as they thought it was and thinking about activist ways to challenge that and combining with others. And all of these themes I think are a lot more able to lend themselves to rebellion and resistance, which are uh, basically running throughout all dystopias to varying degrees. And I also think that traditionally dystopian authors have been posing more of a challenge to what they see as a direction of travel, uh, as opposed to posing an alternative. And again, that lends itself to activist groups. And in your research as well into this sphere, do you have any thoughts on where you think utopia and dystopian fiction and activism relating to utopia and dystopian fiction might go in the near future? So, I mean, as you can probably tell, I'm quite cynical. Um, <laughs> around the use of dystopia because I, like, like I say if it can be taken up across the political 
the political spectrum. I just think the use of dystopia in activism doesn't necessarily mean that it's radical or progressive. There's quite a lot of uh, people that have taken up 1984 in very uh, right-wing ways. I mean, I think, again, at the protest, the um, anti-lockdown one, there was one, there was a sign that really makes no sense, but it said COVID-19, more like COVID-1984. But I, I do think that it, it, it can be used in, in very dangerous, insidious ways, in a way that isn't necessarily fruitful or leading to what I would imagine as a, as a utopia. And this is also the case to be made as well. I mean, one person's dystopia is another's utopia. So I think in terms of the, the direction it can go, it can be used in very interesting ways and it is being used in very interesting ways. And I, I, I do have some hopefulness around what COVID uh, is making possible in terms of imagining universal basic income in a way that wasn't possible three months ago. But I'm not entirely convinced that dystopia can be used in ways that are lending itself to leftist, radical movements in a way that I would necessarily condone. Quietly, skeptically hopeful, I guess is how I would sum it up. I'd be interested to hear what you both think, actually. Hopeful without being an optimist. Uh, I think dystopias push you into avoiding complacency, but they don't often provide mm. much direction. So I really am really strongly mm. identifying with your idea of uh, of activism being, uh, in essence, kind of utopian, believing that there's a you know there has to be a better way to do things. And I think I'm I'm finding myself more and more frustrated with novels like 1984 for example even even though they're written from a socialist perspective they're strongly creating this view of a world that is so extreme mm. it doesn't really bear much relation and it, it doesn't really help us in any way it just kind of says that that's what things could be like if we take things to an absolute extreme but i think for me the challenge is identifying and I think that's why I particularly liked Parable of the Sower because it was so identifiable with our contemporary life in a way, which uh, I think for me, I'm, I'm identifying with those kind of dystopias more where I can kind of see the kind of mid ground between the absolute extremity of a complete dystopia like 1984 and, uh, and utopia as well. So I, I think this, the mid ground for me is, is the most interesting where I kind of go, actually, these are the things that we can really identify in our current world and must care about now. Yeah. That's what ticks for me. Um, I don't know about you, Wolf. I think, well, I think the main thing that you're highlighting is that, I know you didn't mention it, but let's say you take a film like Brazil where there's really no hope and you get given it briefly and then it's taken away and you kind of realize that nothing's ever going to get better. That kind of storyline feels like it exists in dystopian fiction quite a bit, whereas in the SOA, there's there's hope. And, and I kind of hope that uh, there's, there's a middle ground and we kind of can take the things that work and we can see the things that don't work and, and we don't just try and put them back to the way they were, but we kind of go in a, in a new direction. I think if that was to happen, then in one year's time, I would be a lot more positive than I am right now. I think we have a huge challenge in the world at the moment, which is to to recognize what the state of the world actually is and what are we going to do about it and I think we have I think we still have hope we still have a say about that and I think it's up to us to try and uh, and make use of that say and how best we do that I don't necessarily know the answers to but I 
Yeah, I feel very similar to you, Wolf. I think, you know, I think we have to respond as a, as a species to what's happening at the moment. And I have hope, but a lot of fear at the same time. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to respond to what you're talking about in terms of the current situation we're in and like the potential for hopelessness, for hopefulness, sorry. But you can tell how hopeless I'm feeling <laughs> uh, through your slipper. <laughs> and I, I was, I'm hoping to shortly take this placement uh, at Autonomy, which is a, a radical think tank based in London. And they are particularly looking at the role of employment in society and they so they do research on things like the universal basic income and before they work a week and how the job center could be you know radically reconfigured to be fairer and more beneficial for society and so very kind of practically utopian way of uh, seeing the world and they're just flat out they're working flat out at the moment because covid is producing a lot of discussions that just weren't possible a few months ago and, and making a case a really strong case for a lot of these things being necessary in relation to the pandemic but also beyond that and I was speaking to the director from the organization about doing a placement with them and I was just I was thinking about this when all of this was kind of kicking off and Boris Johnson you know actually talking about these things being rolled out on a wider scale in a way that six months ago was seen as socialist terrors you know um like you're saying wolf i think we could easily go back to the way things were go back to the status quo you know go back to very capitalist exploitative scary ways of the world that we were so used to we we, we were so used to we never really contemplated how things could be different the COVID has actually allowed us to to do and I, i'm not saying that i want you know the disaster to continue in terms of I know that lives are being lost, and I think that that's a real travesty. Uh, but it is bringing things to bear in a way that I think could lead to utopian alternatives to prevent something like this happening again. And I think I often, I've been doing a, a different placement, you can tell I really like the placement, on Octavia Butler. And she, in her journals, talked a lot when she was writing Parable of the Sower about how she wanted to look at the future that we might be carelessly building that we are slowly but surely moving towards if we carry on doing things the way that we are. Uh, so she did loads of research on, on climate change and wealth inequality and uh, race relations, concepts of like throwaway labor that she saw around her and kind of extrapolated all of those concerns that she had into what we see in parables. And was unfortunately very prescient in some of her uh, narrative imagination in terms of a lot of its incredibly relevant scary relevant today but there is still an opportunity for like you say utopian solutions she looked at community building she focused on education and a sense of uh, flexibility and being open to change and all of these things are really really important within the within the, the dystopia octavia was notoriously cynical about any form of, of, of utopia sorry because she just thought it wouldn't work for everyone um, but at the same time, she really valued the possibilities of utopia within dystopian conditions. You know, dystopia was her go-to, but there was always an element of hope running throughout um, and surviving against the loss, uh, which I think is really, really important. I think I agree with you. I think it's it's horrible what's happening, but I think 
it's forcing us to reckon with our society, which we've needed to do for a long, long time, and we've almost become complacent. And I, I think I hope along, along with what you're saying that we are not allowed to be complacent anymore, and that we have to find maybe you know maybe maybe we take utopian ideals and we find a way of doing things better and i i strongly think that's very important at the moment and i think we're all seeing that for ourselves i hope that that trend sticks with us even if i hope that that covid pisses off as soon as possible at the same time yeah i think it's particularly interesting just on a, on a smaller level one of the First things that a lot of us noticed, if we didn't immediately lose our jobs or get furloughed, <laughs> is that we were told, I know so many people who were told like to their face, you cannot work from home. The job, we cannot move it to work from home. It's not possible. So are all these systems in place for all of this traveling and commuting, all these expenses for everyone to come and share all these uh, workspaces. And then as soon as this happened, uh, the business is just transferred to working at home with very little um, challenge. And everyone sat at home being like, oh, I could have always done this uh, in some form or another. And they now we can no longer go back to a world where they can, those employers can tell their employees that the job cannot be done at home. That was a false reality that has already crumbled. I'm not saying that they will work from home from now on, but, and I'm not necessarily saying that they were all lying. I just think we trapped in this reality where we couldn't conceive of another one. Why would you do it differently? But now we've realized you can, uh, it'll be interesting to see how, how things change. The thing that I only worry about a little bit, perhaps, with, with this scenario is that we're obviously in this period of kind of massive change, if you like. And what the, the danger, as well as the hope, is that that change will be taken advantage of. And, yeah. and the divisiveness of, of how you know, p- different people are being treated through it, that's the bit that kind of scares me a little bit. Like, I think most people can realise that that we need to change for the better and we need to, and that a lot of false realities just don't stack up anymore. But what I'm a little bit afraid of is people taking advantage of the situation and not doing it for the better, which I think is what scares me a little bit about what's happening in America at the moment. And, for example, the, all immigration being banned and things like that, it's like being like using covid as a, as a pretext for for doing these kind of things which i think is is quite scary to me and i i hope that the the main thing that comes out of it is is like you say things like discussions about universal basic income and these kind of things rather than more division but it's a it's definitely a balance of hope and fear at the moment for me do you if for anyone else who's interested in in reading or learning more what kind of texts or resources would you recommend people seek out the ones that I'm focusing on particularly who have been used by activists and I think are very politically relevant are Dispossessed uh, by Ursula Le Guin, who uh, talks about anarchy, but also challenging the status of any political change and political uh, management. This Sacred Thing uh, by Starhawk is very ambiguously utopian dystopian. This community that is infiltrated by outsiders who kind of threaten their way of life and how they resist that. And the, the community that we are shown is uh, really heartwarming and, and very around collective ways of organizing and the value of things like water. And it's, it's quite an environmental text. My absolute favorite is uh, Woman on Edge Time, which I recommend both of you read immediately. Um, <laughs> if I was going to 
to sign a utopia for our future, Women on the Earth's Time is what it would look like <laughs> because it's just incredible uh, in terms of the way that it manages to think about how things can be different. It was it written in the uh, 70s and it was drawing a lot of political campaigns of the time and, and how we might want to be uh, as a society, as, as a community, how, how jobs might work, uh, how families might work and it kind of references ongoing battles, so it's not perfect, but they're very far away and they're something that people are invested in challenging, but this community is still pretty pretty solid and, and utopian, but also flexible. I think that that's something that comes through in a lot of these is that there's no point in having a utopia if it's set in stone because things don't work consistently at the time. You need to be able to adapt and respect the situation around you and account for differences among the best texts for me are the ones that bring these things together and don't just focus on one or the other because I think dystopia can be total and leave you feeling completely uh, despondent uh, and, and utopia can feel too far away. Like how do we get to the, the utopia that we're seeing if we have no kind of challenges or no room for change? So I think that there's a case to be made for both being vital and useful at once. That, that discussion really opened my eyes up to how to approach it and to consider it and and I think yeah I'm very interested to to certainly read more of the text that you've suggested because that's that's what I want to find I don't want to be purely despondent and imagine Mm. that we're living in a dystopia but if if we are going to work for for a better world for for a change maybe even for utopian ideals then what are the what do you see are the dystopian traits in our current affairs that you think we should keep an eye out for? The dystopian traits that I think are most apparent have been up for debate uh, as a result of of COVID, actually, because I think in the lead up to like the best course of action, I was kind of torn between my anarchist principles of being like, you know, we don't need government intervention and we can figure this out ourselves to being like, but lockdown seems to be the best way forward. And actually, maybe I want quite a lot of state control uh, in, <laughs> in that respect, in terms of, you know, making sure that people aren't leaving the house, making sure that people are social distancing. Um, because although I do think that anarchist principles are important, we, you know, we aren't there yet. And we are a society that is living under capitalism, which means that we probably do need a certain level of oversight potentially to enable us to try and battle this virus spreading as best we can especially because you know the uh, initial approach of doing very little made things far worse it's been an interesting thing i think to to feel like some of my fundamental core principles that i thought i would always stick by have been pretty clearly disrupted by actually wanting potentially more enforcement of (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> of uh you know distancing and uh lockdown protocols <laughs> I, I don't i don't um, i think i try and view it as less as enforcing rather than um community cooperation just it has to be on a grand scale because that's the kind of scale of population we have in the world like i just prefer to term it as community cooperation rather than enforcement even though 100 percent is enforcement <laughs> and i think it just kind of points out that we really need like a a strong kind of um, accountability for our government that perhaps capitalism doesn't quite allow us to have because 
uh, when money is power, that does not mean that uh, the government is necessarily accountable to all these people that it's locking down. So yeah, it's true. It's an interesting trade-off, isn't it? That's it's certainly quite a challenging one to think about at the moment. Clearly, I'm of the mind right now that we should be staying in our homes and we should not be leaving. But I can take a text like that and I'll be like, yeah, we've got to fight back against the system. We've got to um, be critical of everything that they're saying and suspicious because what happens if that's happening? So I'm also torn that somebody else expresses that view right now and I think they're crazy. But in other situations, I'm completely on board with it. I've actually made like a little list of dystopian phrases du jour. Uh, <laughs> and I think fake news for me is actually a really dystopian phrase, like like slogans of dystopia. Like it's the kind of thing that people chant, fake news, fake news. And actually, I think there's an awful lot of it about, yes. But I think the reference to it is quite dystopian in a way because it's essentially eradication of any notion of truth that we might have. It doesn't matter whether news is fake or real anymore. If you, the, what matters is you can claim it's not real, and that's that's something that really, really troubles me. Is this eradication of truth that we're having? And I think a lot of the poor government messaging at the moment is making people be a little bit divided in a way because no one quite knows what's exactly the right thing, and there's not enough. Like New Zealand's had very clear messaging, and that's been great, and I really appreciate that. But in a lot of the rest of the world, it's been very confused. And even in America, you've got the president encouraging protests against his own recommendations and scientific advice. I mean, that kind of destabilization is what really scares me. And I find that as quite dystopian. But I yeah, I completely agree with you. And it resonates with things like, what's the, the Raymond Briggs graphic novel that then got turned into a song by our favorite band, Iron Maiden, uh, Where the Wild Wind Blows. And it's an old couple that thinks that the fallout is coming and they, they, they heard it on the TV and they end up taking tins of poison. And it was just, it turns out it's just an earthquake. That that really resonates with, with what you were saying there, Wolf. That it, it's, you know, what what is actually truth? And I think the eradication of it is something that really, really scares me at the moment. I also added to my list social distancing. I find that like the this kind of mantra of social distancing, I find that a very bizarre slogan. Because actually, in a way, I think it's physical distancing. But social distancing implies this kind of distance yourself from your own community of people around you that would normally keep you kind of sane and that's what we need like to to respond it's essentially it's in the word socialism it's it's social is what you know we need it and to to distance ourselves from it feels very dystopian to me so that was my other one Uh, and then i had to credit trump for the invisible enemy as well which i think is a ridiculous phrase trying to personify a disease as this kind of evil thing that can be combated as if like it's a victory we're searching for like it's a war it's very bizarre and this mantra of oh it's the invisible enemy that we've got to defeat and it's uh, that really troubles me and added to that i've seen things like there's been posters in my girlfriend's apartment block basically informing on neighbors who are seen doing things that were not appropriate and that really troubles me as well Oh my God, like neighbours informing on neighbours is really the scariest thing. And um, yeah. and I think what what scares me in certainly in the UK is in this kind of confused response that the government has had, that no one's quite sure what is what they should be doing or should not be doing. And there's this kind of, it's like a kind of anarchy that no one knows they're living in anarchy. So everyone's just kind of making up their own rules, but no one's quite sure of what the rules are. And even if they should be sure of their own rules, but they'll damn well shout at other people about it and start informing on their neighbours, which really troubles me. 
So I was just saying that I have like a kind of standard list of things that I would like to like challenge or I think that are important to be questioning. Mm. Uh, but they all feel so like not 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 irrelevant because they're probably you know being exacerbated uh, or affected by this, but just so like far removed from the current situation. So it's very difficult not to like you've been doing focus on current conditions that are becoming slowly the norm uh, around kind of surveillance and state control or uh, telling on your neighbors or you know all of these kind of different areas like the the activism that i i, I would say i've been most invested in challenging in terms of current affairs has been around climate change being kind of very dystopian uh, in, in in various different ways and how we can try and stop that continue around borders and border control and uh, immigration law and how that affects people's lives and that obviously relates to things like brexit prison abolition has been a really big form of quite utopian ways of thinking about how the world could be without prisons or like what are different forms of justice like restorative or transformative justice that would enable less harm to be enacted on those who have uh, committed certain crimes i think that the dispossessed and women on the edge of time particularly speak to those things but those ideas around not having uh, any prisons anymore uh, within the utopia that they've configured and then other things like the more i guess kind of on the on the micro level around uh, kind of class race gender and these things not being as important as they are now in terms of aggregating resources and uh, treatment are the kind of things, the kind of current affairs that I would say are dystopian. But you, but you could argue that everything, everything that you want to stop or everything that you see as a problem could be considered dystopian, taken to its most extreme point or seen in certain contexts where it's, it's really um, brutal or scary. So I think the dystopia in that way in terms of getting invested emotionally and how things could be worse is quite a good way to motivate political action. The, I guess the biggest takeaway I have from dystopia in general is perhaps not that we should constantly be in revolution all the time. And I don't necessarily know what my utopia would be. I have a slight answer for how I would like one crazy answer maybe, but Generally, the main thing I take away from it is I think we need to constantly be challenging everything. In discussion between the three of us, I think we've, I certainly feel like I've taken a lot away from it to think about how we not only approach uh, the world that we currently live in, but how you know we perhaps use dystopias and utopias to, to understand that. And so I just mainly wanted to say a huge thank you to you, Kate, for, for coming and chatting to us about it. Yeah, you're very welcome. It's been a lot of fun. No, thank you for coming on. I really think that we couldn't have tackled this episode even uh, half as efficiently uh, without your help. Oh, that's really sweet. Thank you. Absolutely. My mind is slightly blown apart, even though I've been researching the topic for a while as well. So uh, so thank you so, so much for sharing with us. Yeah, I've enjoyed it so, so much. So yeah, huge, huge thank you. Brilliant. Uh, so thank you for coming along. You're very welcome. Yeah. I will speak to you both soon. Thanks, Kate. Thank you, you so later. much. Just catch you later on. Take care.
so that was Kate. That was absolutely brilliant. And I think in even in all the research that I've done, I feel still like I've learned a huge amount and there's still so much more to explore. So I hope when you're listening to this, you, you feel that you've found some new things to explore as well. Is there anything that you felt that you've learned throughout this episode? What, what, what are your takeaways from everything that we've discussed so far and everything that we've researched as well? I think maybe my main takeaway from this is when I was thinking about this episode, it was always in the context of this feels dystopian. Oh, it feels like we're trapped in a dystopia. Oh, this is a worrying sign that we're heading towards a dystopia. And obviously I don't want us to end up in a dystopia, but what surprised me most was that reading these texts, it's not quite as depressing as it might sound or as I first thought. And I would say my main takeaway is that you can read a lot of dystopian fiction or if you pick the right ones anyway and it's intellectually challenging and eye-opening about the possibilities for human existence and society. We, we started doing dystopias in a way because it felt relevant to our current world and I mentioned the quote from 1984 about refugees as well and I think Kate's point as well that it's really important to recognise how dystopia manifests itself and I think we have to find hope, but we also have to recognise that there are dystopias that, that really currently exist. If if a refugee camp in northern France is not some kind of dystopia where people are under state control and surveillance and trapped in some kind of weird bureaucratic, endless, you know, hellhole, then, then what is a dystopia? There's huge oppression in the world. And I think we're kind of have become relaxed about dystopia in the West because we haven't faced it in the same way we had since the Second World War. So I wanted to kind of come back to that and just to recognise that there are dystopias out there. There are plenty of people who are suffering from great oppression that utilises some of the tools of dystopias. Uh, if anything, reading dystopian and utopian fiction is a call to do more. We always have to do more and figure out how to resist oppression within within the world around us. And I think it's worth taking that idea and realising that in reality, we probably aren't going to be overtaken by one all-consuming totalitarian regime that creates a dystopia for everyone in the world. I think you need to look for the dystopian tropes and in the smaller scenarios, maybe the benefit system is dystopian to them and you, you just can't survive in it i think prison system is terrible i think capitalism is a, is a concerning form of dystopia in a way because yep. it relies on the oppression of probably a majority of the world because we have this massive skewing of the world's wealth where there's a great amount of wealth concentrated in a very small number of people whilst the majority of the people on the planet are suffering in like insane poverty and that is that is a dystopia that has been created by a system now the system doesn't necessarily have a leader in in a figurehead in the classic kind of big brother sense but it is it is a system and i think it has elements of dystopia to it we really should be considering how the world works as a global system as well you should definitely read the dispossessed it's really interesting where this traveler comes from an anarchist system into a capitalist system and can't understand how they operate or why they do the things that they do and they're always at this constant kind of distance between them as when they attempt to do the most basic human interactions or uh, tasks 
because one person always has one view of how things should be done and the other always has another view yeah that's the the inherent challenge of our world isn't it is there's no way of of unifying everybody under one thought system that in itself would be dystopian so plurality is is an important thing and with that thank you very much for listening and i hope you've enjoyed hearing our discussion with kate it's a huge huge thank you to her coming on for that yeah uh thank you very much kate uh i think we also need to thank your brother phil uh and dom who've uh, helped us with kind of the planning for this and with our social media and our marketing and uh, generally guiding us in how to uh, improve and thank you to everyone for listening and if you have any favorite dystopian films or graphic novels games novels then uh, let us know uh, and especially if we haven't read them or seen them we'd be very happy to get on board so we're excited to see what you recommend absolutely thank you very much for listening to find out more or get in touch and send us your suggestions we are on facebook and instagram at the great unknown pod you can email us at the great unknown pod at gmail.com and we are on twitter at great unknown pod if you enjoyed this podcast please subscribe to get each new episode automatically delivered to your device and please leave us a review and a rating so more people can come and join in thanks for listening we'll see you next time